Thank you very much indeed. Well, happy Christmas to you all. I hope you had the, the presence of your dreams. Do you know the story of the, the mother who had three very, very wealthy children, three boys? And this woman had pretty much everything. And the boys wanted to prove to their mum just how much they loved her. So they tried to think hard. And the first one decided he was going to give her a Mercedes. But actually, she was very old. She couldn't see very well. She never drove. It wasn't a great present. The second decided to give her a mansion, huge house. But she was very comfortable in the house she was living in. She didn't want to move at her age. And anyway, she couldn't see very well. There was no point getting used to another completely different house. The third knew that he had to, to give her something completely different. Here was a woman who had everything. And he did his research online, and he discovered an amazing parrot. And this particular parrot had been trained for at least 15 years to be able to recite the whole Bible. All he had to do to the, the parrot is give a verse from the Bible, and then the parrot could parrot out the precise words of that verse. It was a brilliant present. Well, anyway, on Boxing Day, this mother wrote her thank you letter. She was very well brought up. And to the first son, she said, Dear son, thank you for the, the Mercedes. I'm, uh, I'm grateful for it, but I can't drive anymore. So uh, you really shouldn't have. To the second, she said, Son, thank you very much for that, uh, that lovely house, but I'm used to my own house. I, I really don't want to move anywhere else. To the third, who had given the parrot, she said, Son, thank you so much. That was a brilliant, brilliant present. That chicken was delicious. <laughs> it's easy to get the wrong end of the stick, isn't it? And here in this passage is a woman who's being offered something amazing. Living water. But she doesn't get it. She thinks Jesus is talking in very physical terms about H2O, real water. And she's excited about that because she thinks, oh, well, that way I won't have to keep on getting to this well to draw water. But she hasn't got it. She doesn't realize just how amazing this present is. And maybe you're not a Christian. And you don't understand just how amazing the present that Jesus offers in himself is. For the rest of us, we are Christians. But why is it that we're not living as we should in the Christian life? It's because we too haven't quite realized and received the true wonder of the present that Jesus offers. Let me read again from uh, John 4, verses 13 and 14. Jesus said, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Let me pray. Loving Father, open our eyes to see the amazing nature of what you're offering for us in Christ, this living water that we might find our true satisfaction in him. In his name we pray. Amen. I wonder if you recognize these words. We'll build a world of our own, which no one else can build. And all our sorrows we'll leave outside. And I know that we'll find there'll be peace of mind when we live in a world of our own. They're actually the words of the, the seekers. And if you recognize them, you are very old Indeed, because that was a hit song from the late 1960s. I've just offended at least uh, a few of you. Many echo those words. They might be old words, 
but they're very contemporary in feel. Many recognize if they could only form a deep, exclusive relationship, then at last they'll find the key to security and happiness. It'll make sense of the whole of their lives. They're looking for those two magic C's, chemistry and commitment. If I could only find Mr. or Miss Wright, then all will be well. We can't be sure exactly what's going on in the life of this woman, but I reckon the woman in John chapter 4 is rather like that. She's so contemporary. She's got a thirst deep inside her, and it seems that she's looking to quench that thirst in human relationships. She keeps trying to build a world of her own based around some exclusive relationship, but every time the relationship falls apart. She's been married five times. Now she's living with a sixth man, And throughout her tragic life, she's never given up. No doubt she thinks to herself each time, this is going to be the one. Yet this is it. This is the man who'll bring me fulfillment and happiness. But they never did. At least not for long. They never quenched her thirst. Now human relationships and marriage are wonderful gifts of God. But they're never designed to be the be-all and end-all of life. And that's the problem. Rather like this woman, so often we bring to human relationships expectations that they were never meant to bear because we're looking for them to deliver the impossible. When Jesus speaks of the living water that he can give, he speaks not just to this Samaritan woman, he speaks to our age that's looking in all sorts of directions to find true spiritual satisfaction, living water, if you like, not least from human relationships, but they can't deliver. So I wonder, are you thirsty? Are you conscious of a deep thirst within? Relationships with other human beings will not quench that thirst. And nor indeed will anything in this world. I've just got one very simple point to make this morning. Only Jesus Christ can satisfy the thirst within. It's a very simple point. But we're going to see it again and again and again and again. Only Jesus Christ can satisfy the thirst within. It's in the nature of the human heart to worship. Our hearts, if you like, are like heat-seeking missiles. They try and latch on to something to give ultimate value to something they'll look to, to find security and satisfaction in. And so it's very, very important that our hearts are focused in the right direction because whatever we latch onto will drive and control our lives. And the Bible presents God as engaged in a loving battle, as it were, to secure our hearts. That's why he sent the Lord Jesus Christ that first Christmas time on a mission of love to capture our hearts, to love him. He offers us, through Christ, the living water that alone can satisfy our heart's desires. And if we're wise, we'll come to him and drink. And we'll keep drinking. Nothing else can satisfy the thirst within. It's a lovely little video, wasn't it, for the, for the kids? That captures something of what's going on. Here's Jesus, surprisingly, for a Jew, not avoiding Samaria and going around the outside because Jews hated Samaritans, but actually going straight through the middle of Samaria. 
Now, there are a couple of reasons why Jews hated Samaritans. For a start, they weren't uh, pure-blooded Israelites. They'd intermarried with Gentiles, so they were looked down as, as racial mongrels. And there were religious heretics as well. The Bible made it very clear that you were to worship God down in Jerusalem, in the temple there. But the Samaritans worshipped God at Mount Gerizim, a different temple. And instead of recognizing what we now know as the, the whole Old Testament as the word of God, they just focused on the five, first five books of the Bible. And the rest they didn't regard as biblical, as the word of God. So here were heretics. And yet Jesus, as he comes in the heat of the day and rests by the well, by the well speaks to this woman. We're told specifically it's the sixth hour. That's midday. It's when the, the sun is at its hottest. If you think about it, it's a very odd time indeed for this woman to be there to fetch the water. would be the kind of job that you'd do once a day. So why choose the hottest time of day for this regular job? It doesn't make a lot of sense. No one else will be there then. Well, perhaps that's the very point. No one else will be there then. We can't be sure, but quite likely she would have been a social outcast. Everyone knew about her colourful relational past, how she'd have five husbands. Now she's living, as it were, in sin with someone she's not married to. And you can just imagine the tut-tutting of the respectable neighbours as she came close. Much easier for her just to come when no one else would be there. And then she wouldn't have to put up with the disapproving stare of those around. Maybe society's given you a low self-image. And you, even if you don't hear the tut-tuts, you sense people looking down on you. You don't quite fit in. You're not respectable. That's because of your gender or your race or your social background or your past or because of some disability. Well, Jesus just doesn't operate in those kind of categories. And he treats this woman with infinite respect he initiates a conversation with her. End of verse 7, he says, will you give me a drink? And she's amazed. Verse 9, you are a Jew and I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? He knew everything about her and yet he reached out to her in love. Just as God knows absolutely everything about us and reaches out to us in love. Then he takes the conversation up a gear. Verse 10, he says, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asked you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. It's been described as an inner fountain of bubbling vitality that satisfies a person's thirst, not just once, but forever. And once Jesus starts speaking about this living water, her interest is immediately aroused. She says, verse 15, oh, sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. She's still locked, do you see, into thinking about natural water. She hasn't got it yet. But you can sense the longing behind what she says. Her water pot would have been beside her. It's been suggested that that water pot is somehow a symbol of the futility of her existence. There it stood, empty again. She'd filled it yesterday. She'd fill it again tomorrow. 
It was like her life, a symbol of never-ending thirst. She'd spend the rest of her days filling that wretched water pot. And at the end, its appetite would be as insatiable as ever. Empty. Empty again. That was her water pot. And that was her. And she's not alone. A psychologist was asked to define the modern world. And he said, for me, the key word is emptiness. And perhaps you're conscious of an emptiness within. And so many people are. And they look in all sorts of directions to try and feed that emptiness and to fill it. Whether it's to money or pleasure or success or career or to sex and relationships. It seems that that's where this woman was looking. We've been sold the lie, haven't we, but that uh, sex is just a bodily appetite. There's nothing to it, really. If you're thirsty, have a Coke. If you're hungry, have a Mars bar. If you're turned on, have sex. It's just purely recreational. But I think deep down we know it's much, much more than that. It's profoundly relational. It is the ultimate form of body language. Shake someone's hand, that's an expression of friendship. Kiss them on the cheek, it's an expression of affection. Have sex with them, and in God's design at least, that is the body language of lifelong total commitment. I love you, and I've committed to you for life. It's profoundly relational, and I think deep down we know it, which is why pornography and casual sex can never satisfy it just, they just fuel an ever deeper craving, which is why they're so addictive. And that craving that we so often feel is not simply a craving for a body. It's a craving for a person, for a relationship. Douglas Coupland, a novelist, is a very shrewd observer of the contemporary world. He said this, putting these words into the mouth of one of his characters in a novel. Starved of affection, terrified of abandonment, I began to wonder if sex was really just an excuse to look deeply into another human being's eyes. Ours is the most connected generation in history, by far. And yet I wonder whether we're the most isolated as well. This is a world in which just a few hours ago I could have been on the other side of the world and now I can uh, have connection with people physically in a completely different continent. Just a few touches of the finger and we're in touch by Facebook and WhatsApp and Skype with the whole world, massively connected and yet so, so isolated. God is love. From eternity, God has been Trinity in relationship of eternal love. And he's made us in love, in his image, that we might relate to him. He's made us relational beings. Yes, to relate to one another. And right from the beginning, marriage was part of his creation design. The committed sexual relationship of a man and woman for life. And that can certainly bring huge joy and happiness along inevitably in a fallen world 
with suffering and pain. But however good human marriage might be, however good human friendship can be, they're not the ultimate relationship. Because ultimately we've been made in the image of God to relate to him. And the thirst within is ultimately a thirst for God. And if we bring to human relationships that longing and seek to satisfy them simply in human relationships, we'll be forever thirsty. And in fact, we'll undermine the very thing that we most want to have. Francis Schaeffer said this, we are finite. And therefore, we don't expect to find final sufficiency in any human relationship, including marriage. The final sufficiency is only to be found in a relationship with God. If a human being tries to find everything in a man-woman, friend-friend relationship, he destroys the very thing he wants and destroys the one he loves. He sucks them dry. He eats them up. And they, as well as their relationship, are destroyed. See, it's an irony that if we try and satisfy our thirst in human relationships, actually, we're much less likely to get the very thing we long for. If you think that what will most make you happy is to find that one exclusive person, well, then the danger is you'll be too picky because your whole life depends on finding this perfect person and no one's quite good enough for you. And you end up with no one. Or, by contrast, you're not nearly picky enough. Because it's so essential you find that special person because your whole life depends on finding that person that frankly when anyone comes along and expresses any kind of affection and love, you're in danger of grabbing them. Because you can't imagine life without that exclusive relationship. And either way, you're likely to be miserable. Or if you find someone, And nothing's more important than that relationship. The danger is you'll emotionally smother them. You'll suffocate them. Because they've got to deliver your happiness. You depend absolutely on them. It's very hard to live with someone like that. You always want them to say how much they love you. And even when they do, you're not quite sure whether they really mean it or they haven't said it in quite the right way. And once again... That desperate longing undermines the very thing you most want for. No lover, no friend, ever quite lives up to the standards that you have. And so after the initial euphoria, maybe of falling in love or finding a a close friendship or an exclusive relationship, very quickly you'll end up disillusioned because they can't deliver the happiness that you want. I wouldn't be at all surprised if that was the case with this woman with those five husbands, each time maybe thinking, this is the one. And each time she finds she hasn't got what she's looking for. Once again, don't get me wrong. Sex and marriage, great gifts of God, but never designed to take the place of God. If we look to them to fill the emptiness and quench the thirst within, we'll end up frustrated. See, the Bible's saying that thirst is not a longing for anything in this world, ultimately. We're created not just as physical beings in a physical world with physical desires and needs for food and drink and sex. 
but ultimately spiritual beings designed to relate to God. And yet we've turned away from him. And it's because we've turned away from him and we're starved of that relationship with him that we have this deep thirst within. And nothing in this world can satisfy that thirst. You look to money and you think, well, if only I, I got lots of money, then I'd be happy. John D. Rockefeller, one of the, the richest men of the world a number of years ago, was once asked, how much money does it take for someone to be really satisfied? He replied, just a little bit more. You'll never get enough. Never get enough. Or maybe it's success and ambition. And you think, if only I'll achieve that, then I'll be happy. But then when you get there, you realize that doesn't satisfy you either. Jack Higgins, the novelist, was once asked what he wished he'd known at 21 that he knows now. He says, I wish I'd known at 21 that when you get to the top, there's nothing there. He achieved all his ambitions. And they didn't satisfy. Lord Byron, the playboy poet, experienced all the pleasures going. He said, I've drunk every cup of joy, heard every trump of fame, deeply drank, drank draughts that common millions might have drunk. Then I died of thirst because there was nothing more to drink. Only Jesus Christ can satisfy the thirst within. He said, everyone who drinks this water, speaking of the water in the well, will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. He's speaking about an abundant supply of living water. And the background imagery of what he's talking about comes straight from the Old Testament. As the people of God turned away from God, they were under his judgment. And the Bible's prophets sometimes spoke about judgment in terms of a parched land without, thir- without water. And then they said, in the future, God will come in amazing grace and love. In the person of the Messiah, the promised king. And he'll restore relationship with God. And then everything will be put right. And one of the great images that's used to describe this great time of salvation is of abundant water. Ezekiel, for instance, sees an image of a magnificent temple that brings life to the ends of the earth. And from this great temple, Ezekiel 40 to 48, rivers of water flow out to the ends of the earth. Speaking about a restored relationship with God that brings life to everyone. Or Isaiah the prophet, come, all you who are thirsty, come to the waters and drink. You sense the woman's longing. Perhaps it seems now she realizes what's being talked about is something spiritual. And so she asks a question. She says, "Um, Jesus, where should we look for this water? Verse 20, our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Who's right? And some commentators say it's a very strange thing for her to ask at this point. And they suggest what's going on is here is a religious red herring. Jesus has pinpointed an area of her life that is wrong. Those five husbands and the man she's now living with who's not her husband. 
and they suggest she's putting up a smoke screen. She comes up with some religious question which is obscure just to try and get him off the scent of her sinfulness. And sometimes people do that. I've had conversations with people and it's all getting a bit spiritually hot. And then they come up with some objection that's not something that's heartfelt for them. Oh, what about science and Christianity? Or you can't trust the Bible. It's not a genuine question. It's just a smokescreen. I don't think for a moment that's what's going on here. Here's a genuine question, I think. Oh, sir, I, I want this living water. I want to meet with God. But where do I find him? Because my people say I should go to the temple in Gerizim, and, and you Jews said we should go down to Jerusalem. Who's right? And Jesus says, well, the Jews were right. It was always meant to be Jerusalem. But all that's changing now. Verse 23, a time is coming and has now come when the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For they're the kind of worshippers the Father seeks. He's saying from now on, things are not tied to a particular place. If you want to meet with God, you've got to come by the spirit and by the truth. Why? What's changed? Well, Jesus has come. And now the way to meet with God is not to go to some special place, but to come to the special person. Because as we celebrate at Christmas time, the Son of God has come into the world. And he's died on a cross to take the penalty for all the, the muck and the sin and the wrongdoing of humans. That we can come back into living relationship with God and drink the water that brings life. Later in John's Gospel, John gives an account of the crucifixion. He speaks of how a soldier pierced the side of Jesus. And out of the side of Jesus came a sudden flow of blood and water. And I take it that's deeply symbolic. His death made possible a flow of living water. The blood speaks of sacrificial death. He died in the place of others, taking the penalty they deserved. And the water speaks of the gift that is now possible for all to receive because he died for them. It speaks of the Holy Spirit by whom we can enter a living relationship with the living God. I wonder if this image of living water fits your mental picture of the Christian life. Maybe you're not a Christian. Before I was a Christian... I had an image of the Christian life as being very negative. I had a picture of God as a, a cosmic spoil sport in the sky with a big stick. Whenever I seemed to be enjoying myself, he'd say, stop that, don't do that, don't do the other. It was a very restrictive kind of life. But even as a Christian, we can have a very small vision of the Christian life. It's what someone's called the kidney donor card view of Christianity. You might have a kidney donor card, which is just there waiting for your death. You, you can't use it in this life. But if you die, it can then apply and someone can say, actually, this person's prepared for their kidney to be used. It's just waiting for death. And some people have that kind of view of the Christian life. You put your trust in Jesus, you've got a certificate of justification. 
This person is in the right with God. And they put it in a nice safe place, maybe in their wallet. It doesn't make any difference in this life, but it's very useful in the world to come. And when you finally die and you're before God at Judgment Day, out comes a certificate. This person has been forgiven and you can enter heaven. Well, that's gloriously true. But what about between trusting in Jesus and death? And the Bible says, we've not just been given a new status, the certificate of justification. We've received new life. Do you notice Jesus says, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life in them. The life of God in the soul of man, in the title of a famous book. It's not just a statement, this person's in the right with with God. It's a living reality in our lives that transforms everything. We long for the perfect partner. One who'll do anything for us. One who'll never let us down and never go away. Well, no fallible, finite human being can ever fulfill those expectations. But Christ can. He loved you so much that he gave his life for you. He paid the price for all your sins. In his sight, you're perfect. You're beautiful. All your wrongdoing is covered by his righteousness. There's nothing you can do to make him love you more. And perhaps even more amazing, there's nothing you can do to make him love you less. He's absolutely committed to you. And when he says, I will never leave you nor forsake you, he absolutely means it. Nothing in this life can separate you from him. Nothing in this world, nothing in the world come. Here is a love that will endure through death into eternity. It's a relationship that will one day be consummated when we enter the presence of God at the end of time. Do you believe those truths? Because if you do, they will transform your life. What the Holy Spirit is doing day by day is applying those truths to our lives. So they're not just statements out there, but they're living water bubbling up within us transforming our attitudes, touching our heart. The key to the Christian life is what's going on in the heart. So why is it that so many of us have become stagnant as Christians, believing all the right things, but actually not changing really? After the initial transformation of dealing with the obvious things that need to be sorted out, For me, it was swearing. It's quite embarrassing as a Christian to be swearing, so I had to deal with that. I dealt with that kind of thing pretty quickly. But how easy it is, once we've dealt with the the obvious ways that that get a tut-tut from from our new Christian friends, how easy it is to get stuck in a rut. What's going to change those things? A heart that really believes that what we've been talking about this morning is true. A heart that's captured by the love of God in Christ. As the Holy Spirit melts our hearts so that we love him more and more and more. As we're amazed more and more and more at his love for us.
the life of God and the soul of man. The title of a very famous sermon, what we're talking about is the expulsive power of a new affection. A friend of mine puts it like this, you've got a, a teenage boy and the parents are really frustrated because this boy spends all his time playing video games and they threaten him, they do everything, but nothing will change it. But then suddenly one day they discover that he's not interested in the video game anymore, never looks at it. What's happened? He's met a girl. And the video, girl, video game is just so boring compared to this relationship he's discovered. What will stop us being captured by those wrong attitudes and actions that so often trap us? And even though we look outwardly very respectable here, you know that you've been trapped. and We're stuck in a rut so easily as Christians. What will change us? Well, not just self-discipline, but as we're captured by the love of God in Christ and allow the living water of Jesus Christ to fill our hearts as we find our satisfaction in him. If we believe the lie that we depend on something or someone in this world for happiness and fulfillment, we'll never be content. Many, many people here are miserable because they believe that lie. Maybe you believe the lie that your satisfaction in life depends on a, re- a perfect relationship with another human being. And we've seen already that places impossible burdens on that relationship. Or maybe you're single, unhappily so, or divorced, or bereaved, or you've got a difficult marriage. And how easy it is just to wallow in self-pity because your whole life, as far as you're concerned, depends on having a a perfect relationship and you haven't got it. Or we make terrible sacrifices at the altar of romance. We know what the Bible says. Keep your marriage vows. Don't have sex before marriage. Don't enter homosexual relationships. Don't marry a non-Christian. But because we believe the lie that our satisfaction in life depends on something other than Jesus Christ and finding that perfect relationship. We're prepared to break up families, to compromise on our moral standards and on biblical principles. But those idols never deliver. They're like salt water that make us more thirsty, which is why this woman keeps going from one to the next to the next, never satisfied. So it's a very simple message today. Only Jesus Christ can satisfy the thirst within. Meditate on his beauty and all you have in him. And those of you who are not Christians, I want to encourage you to believe that Jesus Christ really is the Lord who loved you so much that he died for you. And he's saying to you, stop chasing those other things. They'll never satisfy you. Come to me and say, please have mercy and receive the forgiveness I offer to to all who trust in me through the death that I died in their place. Receive the living water of the Spirit and begin to live for me. I want to plead with you to do that today. For those who are Christians, to drink again 
from the wonder of those truths and live in the light of them. Because only as we really believe that only Jesus Christ can satisfy the thirst within will we turn away from those idols that will never satisfy. just want to close with a favorite extract of mine from one of the Narnia books of C.S. Lewis. Jill is a little girl who's very thirsty. At last, she's found some water. The trouble is, a lion stands between her and it. Aslan, who represents the Lord Jesus. If you're thirsty, you may drink. Are you not thirsty? said the lion. I'm dying of thirst, said Jill. Then drink, said the lion. May I? Could I? Would you mind going away while I do, said Jill. The lion answered this only by a look and a very low growl. And as Jill gazed at its motionless bulk, she realized she might as well have asked the whole mountain to move aside for her convenience. The delicious rippling noise of the stream was driving her nearly frantic. Will you promise not to do anything to me if I do come, said Jill. I make no promise, said the lion. Jill was so thirsty now that without noticing it, she'd come a step nearer. Do you eat girls? She said, I have swallowed up girls and boys, women and men, kings and emperors, cities and realms, said the lion. It didn't say this as if it were boasting, nor as if it were sorry, nor as if it were angry. It just said it. I daren't come and drink, said Jill. Then you will die of thirst, said the lion. Oh dear, said Jill coming another step nearer. I suppose I must go and look for another stream then. There is no other stream, said the lion. Let me pray. Loving Father, we praise you that in your Son, Jesus, you offer to us living water, a relationship with you that brings deep and lasting satisfaction. Please help us to come to you and drink for the first time. We pray for some here this morning that they'd come turning from sin, trusting in Christ for the first time. And for the rest of us, help us not to look to other things for satisfaction, but to keep coming back to Jesus and delighting in all he offers that we might live wholeheartedly for him. And we pray this In Jesus' name, amen.